it is currently 9 a.m. on this Monday, the 10th of August, 2020. Welcome to Community Pulse, your locally produced program on the coronavirus pandemic here in mid-Missouri. As a reminder, you can catch Community Pulse live Monday through Thursdays at 9 a.m. right here on KOPN. Episodes are then uploaded to our website, kopn.org, also our Facebook profile, and you can find all backdated episodes on both Apple and Spotify podcasts. Today on the program, host Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, local family physician and host of Your Health Matters here on KOPN, will be joined by another local family physician who also happens to be the medical director of the Columbia slash Boone County Department of Public Health and Human Services, Dr. Ashley Millam. So, doctor, doctor, good morning to both doctors. How are are you this morning, ladies? Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Ashley. It's lovely to interact with you um, voice to voice. Um, thanks for giving us some, some of your time this morning. Of and I'm wondering, you know, usually we start, uh, Dr. Mellon, with um, some numbers, and we're trying to keep things more local than we have in the past. But this weekend, the Department of Health and Senior Services, the uh, state website had some difficulty. They were moving to a new uh, forum. And so um, my usual source, Matthew Holloway, did not publish his typical data. So I'm wondering um, if you wanted to say which numbers you're watching and how you think they're going. Sure. So um, our Boone County numbers were at 1,408 total cases. 240 of those are active, and we've had five deaths here in Boone County. Um, The other kind of big thing that um, I'm keeping an eye on is our um, breakdown, kind of looking at health disparities, which obviously um, is really significant nationally um, in regards to COVID-19, like it is with other health conditions. And so um, my, you know, the most accurate for Boone County, as far as case numbers, is using that como.gov slash coronavirus website, um, or mm-hmm. there's a link on that page also to that hub. Um, what happens at the state level is that um, there's sometimes there's a lag time, but if there is a case that then we determine is in a different county or vice versa, another county identifies that they're actually someone who resides in Boone County and they were tested in another county for some reason, then that case gets transferred. And so our data analyst here updates those as soon as we get that information. And so um, that's, that's just kind of um, why that's my go-to source. Um, but that's kind of our big numbers right now. You can break down those numbers a number of different ways. You can see that on that GIS hub um, that they use. And so um, there's a whole lot of different numbers we could, we could be looking at and interested in. And I sh- wish I had um, the, I should have pulled that up right beforehand, but I didn't, um, like our 14-day average per 10,000. A lot of people are looking at that based on um, looking at kind of getting into, getting close to schools, opening and kind of figuring out what makes the most sense. And so I think that's something that they'll be posting prominently if that is going to be adopted by our local schools here. Gotcha. Um, yeah, so I did just a little bit of back of the envelope figuring, and it looks like July and August have been much higher as far as um, average, like seven-day average um, cases. So we were running, you know, in June, we were running 10 to 11 um, uh, seven-day average cases, daily cases, yeah. and, and now we're running more like 20 to 30. Well, we were right. up to about 30. Then the, I think the mask 
it's, it coincided in time with the implementation of the mask ordinance and it's a little bit of a lag that we've gone back down to 20, but we're still not back to our um, numbers that we saw in May and June. Absolutely. In Boone County. Yeah. I've also been following the RT um, tracker for the United States and Missouri's RT number was is still above one, which means that we're in exponential growth. Um, But we are no longer number one or two in the nation. And part of that is because our number has gone down from like, I think it was one almost close to 1.3. And now it's down to 1.15 or something. And other states have surpassed us. So it's not really good news if if we're not first in the nation anymore, if it's because other states have gotten worse. Yeah. 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 Okay, so it feels like we're sort of plateaued at a higher level than uh, we were before, and we have um, some big changes in our community happening now and about to happen. And I'm wondering, how is the health department doing right now? And I know I'm putting you a little bit on the spot. Sure. No, that's okay. Um, You know, the CARES Act funding, um, the health department um, is getting a portion of that. And so for the last few weeks, I'm thinking probably a little over two weeks, I'm not sure the exact date that they really started looking at um, hiring whenever it looked like this was very possible things. They kind of started preliminarily trying to um, post temporary positions for contact tracing and health education, um, some of the data analysis as well, some of these things that we just need more individuals um, helping with this just because our case number has increased. And so um, that is something that is great that we're at that point that we could be hiring. That's not something that's actually um, helping us increase our turnaround time, getting meaning getting back to individuals sooner because those people haven't actually been hired as probably everyone is aware that is a process to um, hire people. And so it's not something that can happen overnight. And so I think they've closed all the applications down. They had a lot of applicants, which is great. Um, so as they get those individuals trained um, and able to, you know, actually brought on to the team, um, that will make, I think, a really big difference in how quickly um, they can complete those contact tracing efforts for each case. Um, but so, I, so I'd say there's a silver lining, right? There's a light there, but I'd say that it's not something that's actively decreasing the time right now because they haven't actually started and been trained yet. Um, and so that will take some time for that to really... Right. Dr. Mellon, has, has the money actually been released? I know there's been some uh, chatter in the newspaper, and I haven't kept up with the latest, whether the... Sure. I, you know, I think it's been assured. I don't know that it's actually in the... that. Sorry, that's outside of my area okay. of expertise right. within the health department. Um, right. And so I don't know if it's actually in the account that... But it's it's been assured or I don't know what the right term is there. Um, And so they're able to go ahead and do the hiring process. We've been reaching out to the hospitals about, you know, a certain amount of that was allotted for testing of uninsured individuals. That is testing that we um, do here, which is really more the safety net testing. We don't have the setup or the infrastructure to be doing a significant amount of the testing. Obviously, all of our staff are participating in the pandemic response. Um, and so to take on the, all of the testing for uninsured individuals would be really infeasible unless we specifically hired staff 
for that or to do what our other staff were doing now so that our current staff could do that. And so, but the, both of the local, um, so all three of the local hospitals have really been um, contributing a lot to that. And so we're working with those hospitals um, to make sure that um, that money does indeed go to um, the testing of uninsured individuals as it, it's supposed to. And so just to be clear, it sounds like you are, you, the health department is not being held up by a holdup in money in hiring new people. The, the only delay is that it just intrinsically takes time to choose people, yeah. hire them, yeah, onboard them, absolutely. train them, get them absolutely. going. Okay. Yes, so, absolutely. so right now it's just a matter of time while those things happen. Absolutely. Beautiful. And so as it stands right now, if you're going to be markedly increasing the number of people who are doing contact tracing and patient education. Yes. Okay. Hooray. And that is going to happen just in time for these big events of right. uh, primary and secondary students going back to school and uh, college students returning to town. Absolutely. All right. How are you feeling about those things? Yeah, so um, I think that we are still seeing the um, primary and secondary schools developing their models and their plans um, and their policies and how they are going to try to limit the spread of the virus um, within schools and within the community directly relating to returning to school. And so um, that's something that obviously we're watching closely and has potential to make a big difference on our community case numbers. Um, so that's something that right now I feel like we're in that preliminary stage of not knowing exactly how that's going to look for the schools. The other thing is that every week, sometimes on a day-to-day basis, there's more and more guidance coming out for those particular schools, um, which is really helpful, um, but also means that it might be continually changing um, as more guidance comes out. So, and as more evidence comes out, as some of those some of the schools either here or around the country start opening, and people can see either the repercussions or how successful or um, not um, different policies and models are um, that might also affect kind of how schools look here. So I think that's good that people are really watching closely and really making sure that they're open to um, evolving their policies depending on how things go both here and nationally. Um, as far as the you know higher education colleges and universities, um, you know we're looking at bringing a lot of people from a variety of places around the country um, into our mid-Missouri town. And so um, that is, you know, that's something that would certainly increase our risk of having increasing cases, just the population alone um, increasing, but also thinking about that these are individuals who are coming from whether it's somewhere else in the state or somewhere else in the country, um, we're bringing individuals, you know, all here together. Um, And so yeah, I'm worried about what that um, what what our case numbers might look like in the coming um, month or so um, as we see kind of the impacts of that. I know the university. I'm not sure all of their policies and plans, but I know they've been working for the last several months on trying to figure out how they keep their students safe and also help keep the community safe, recognizing that you know, that, that they are going to be a source of people coming in from many different places, which whether you're looking at a conference or you're looking at a festival, th- these are things that we know are high risk for a respiratory virus um, to have multiple people with different right. exposures coming to the same place. 
and we we have learned this over the years with other illnesses. So this is these are it's not like we're just picking on the university or any of the other colleges right now. We we see that that's often how influenza increases or comes to Columbia. Um, as, and and at any time, a large group of people gather from a lot of different places. We would expect that there would be an increase in spread of illness. Exactly, exactly. And I think that it's really important. These, me saying, you know, yeah, I'm worried about what our cases will do when schools go back, and doesn't mean that there's not a, a um, something on each side to be balanced. And so, I really think right. the way whenever we look at schools specifically. Um, it's all about that risk reduction where there is not a win-win scenario here. It's trying to make the harm as little as possible because there's real risk in not offering school or education at all the different levels. And there's real risk in letting a pandemic, um, ex- you know, exponentially increase more than it already is. And so um, I think right. that has to be really clear that it's, it's, not you're right it's not to be critical of schools it's just being realistic about the fact that um bringing people in from different from different places where they could potentially have different exposures um is going to be something that's going to increase risk it's not to say that it's not worth that risk how it looks i mean i think there's certain mitigation strategies that can decrease that risk and those really have to be continually looked at and modified. Um, but it's that's where I think all of, you know, people are looking at different models and trying to figure out what's the best balance. There's not going to be a perfect balance. Um, right. but, it, it, but schools are very, and education is obviously um, a really it's essential thing. And so it's figuring out, okay, well, how do we find this balance? How much of that can we do in a way that doesn't propagate the spread or propagates it as little as we can possibly do while still providing education? And um, so I think that's an important thing versus looking at a um, festival or um, going to a bar or things like this where um, I'm not sure if you want to call those enrichment activities or social activities, but I'd say that most people would agree those are not as essential as um, education. Very well said. I have been really pretty flummoxed that we are deciding to choose um, indoor bars and restaurants um, and question whether or not we should open our schools. Um, Anyway, so I am wondering who you're thinking about. I know that when you sent your email, you were talking about some of the people whose stories are on your heart, people who, are, who don't have insurance, um, people who don't have homes. Um, who are, yeah, t- talk to me about these communities at risk, and do we have a plan? Yeah, so um, I'd say whenever we look at our healthcare system pre-pandemic, we have had some significant gaps, um, to say the least, in our healthcare system. Um, people who don't have insurance or who have insurance, and it's a high deductible plan, so it really is only helpful to them in a catastrophic event because they can't afford the bills that come from going to the doctor or getting seen when they when they. Um, need something addressed, um, medically speaking. Um, And so then you add a pandemic to it and you look at the risk factors um, for having a more severe illness if you contract COVID-19 and the risk factors for contracting COVID-19 and the same people who were falling into this gap in our healthcare system before the pandemic 
they still are, but now they're also at higher risk, um, specifically related to this illness, COVID-19. And so um, when we look at individuals without a home um, and one, just the exposure alone, but then the gathering of individuals, a lot of these individuals have underlying conditions that aren't adequately controlled. They don't have reliable access to sanitation. Um, and then you've got individuals without insurance or with, you know, underinsured is what we would kind of call that where they have insurance, but it's really not helpful to them. Um, so they're not able to get um, seen or have access to a provider whenever they first have symptoms. Um, you know, when someone gets sick and they are, most of these people that I'm referring to don't have insurance, not because they have the luxury of not needing it, but because it's not affordable for them. So then if they get sick, um, even if they do have a confirmed diagnosis of COVID-19 and they develop some shortness of breath or some chest pain, then they're looking at, do I go to the ER and get seen um, and rack up thousands of dollars in bills, um, which might not might not ever. I mean, that's incredibly overwhelming um, to someone who does not have that disposable um, income or dispensable income. Um, and then, so they wait until they really have to. We know that delaying care when you have symptoms of a low oxygen level, that that increases your risk of dying from COVID-19. And um, these are the decisions that people are making. Um, and it's a lot of people that actually fall into this category of either not having insurance or, you know, having insurance that only after they meet their $5,000 deductible, does it actually cover anything? Um, and my opinion is that these are not decisions that people should have to make. Um, and so, this is an illness where if you get really sick and you require a ventilator, this is not like two days and you're off the ventilator. A lot of people are on the ventilator for weeks. Um, that's a really, that's, it's a really big deal. And it's just really unfortunate that right now we have a system that is, has our most vulnerable people also now most vulnerable specifically in this particular illness. And as far as kind of right. what's, being done to address it. Yes, there are um, some things being done. It's not the same as having a system um, policy or plan. Um, and so we've got some amazing individuals who work with our unsheltered um, population here, people who don't have homes. Um, and so they have been so great from the beginning of the pandemic. They've been working with us on, you know, how do we keep these individuals um, safe and how do we, you know, how do we help get them um, tested if they develop symptoms? And so, but a handful of people is not the same thing as adjusting our system to care for everybody in the system. Right. And these, these um, conundrums, these tough places are not new to, to people in that spot. It's just, because exactly. they have the same problem if they think they might be having a heart attack or exactly. having a stroke or, yes. uh, you know, whatever. Exactly. All of the many things. But now it's just going to happen to more people. And in addition, people, many people have lost their jobs and their health insurance was connected to their jobs. Exactly. Right. Yes. Yep. You're exactly right. Really, really pointing out that or 
um, really illuminating the issue of that being the way we provide people insurance. If we tie it to someone's job, there is some really significant flaws. I would argue that's an understatement um, in that being the way that we provide insurance to individuals. Right. So um, what I, I, and this is not me trying to say that the health department should be fixing all these problems, but what kind of plans do we have in place to, to address these things or, yeah. or so from the beginning of the pandemic and that's what, you know, we've, we've got a great group of people who work at the local health department here. Um, and so from the beginning, you know, whenever we've had an individual with, um, new onset symptoms in one of these situations, um, we, there's a whole number of us who um, are able to reach out and, and by a number, I mean a handful. So again, it would be much better, right. better to have a system-wide strategy, um, but where we can reach out and discuss if it's someone who's able to get to a testing site, are we able to provide them with the provider order that they need to do that. Um, that's not something that we can do for everyone in Boone County. Um, so people who have access to a provider who have um, insurance and, and can get seen, that is really helpful because it, when I say a number of us, I'm referring to a small handful <laughs> of us. And so, um, but whenever we look at these really vulnerable individuals that they don't have another way um, to get tested. Um, and even if you don't care about these individuals, which is hard for me to say, but I understand that maybe the category some people fall into, um, this really does impact the community too. And so we can look at this more broadly that if we let COVID-19 run rampant in our more vulnerable communities, it is going to eventually affect our non-vulnerable um, individuals in our community too. And so I think this is a smart idea for us to care about this group, um, even if it's not for completely benevolent reasons. I, I think everyone can at least get on board with wanting to keep the entire community safe. Um, but we are able to, so on an individual level, we're able to reach out and work with um, the organizations that serve our vulnerable populations, um, and then on a case-by-case -case basis, um, help facilitate people getting tested, whether that's us going in and doing testing um, on site, or whether it's us facilitating them um, getting tested at one of the other kind of testing sites here. So that, that being said, so you can see from that, it's very case by case, kind of figuring out as, as, as it comes. And that is not ideal whenever you're responding to a pandemic. And so we continue to try to um, design and implement a more broad systemic approach. That's hard to do with um, just utilizing a handful of individuals, which is why it'd be really great if, um, if we can use this as an opportunity to recognize um, that this is that our system needs to adjust um, in health-related issues for our vulnerable populations. And so that's a big project, obviously, and a big undertaking, um, but I hope that that's the direction we can go from here. Yeah, so I was, that's a great segue. I was going to ask you what kind of support the health department could use from individuals and from our government, and it sounds like more funding and more staffing to do more programs would be well spent. And I'm just wondering if there's anything that individuals can do yeah, that's a great question. There is, um, I think they still have the Get Help, Give Help. I'll double check on the website before I share this information and make sure that that's still going on. So our um, human services supervisor here has been working with a number of um, programs who have been interested, who have been interested in helping from the beginning of the pandemic, and they have decided. They have designed these websites 
um, that for people who are either needing help or if people are wanting to give help, there's a whole number of ways that they can contribute. And so if you go to that como.gov slash coronavirus, there's a get help link and a give help link. And so that's still a, I just double checked the links just now. Um, so that's still a really great way to get involved um, in this as, as well. I do think the funding that's coming in, you know, specifically to help aid in the testing for uninsured individuals um, plays a big role and being able to um, hire staff for contact tracing and some of these things that is, uh, has, you know, taken over the full-time responsibilities of our, um, you know, existing staff who still have their regular, you know, responsibilities um, to do during this pandemic as well. Exactly. I was about to ask you what is, you know, what things are, and um, I, what things are not being done at the level that uh, need to be done, um, again, Absolutely. not trying to be critical at all, but yeah. like I'm hearing worldwide that um, attention to HIV and tuberculosis are sort of falling by the wayside. And I'm wondering what your what's painfully not happening for you in, in the health department here locally. Absolutely. So we, early on, we decreased our in-person clinical services for a couple of reasons, and some of those have come back. Um, So at the beginning, we are, so a lot of our appointments are walk-in. Individuals can walk in and get seen. That's really important for um, people who have a lot going on in their life that they Mm -hmm. may not be able to set aside a dedicated time. Um, So that was something that we had to change early on for a couple of reasons. One is that we, a lot of our staff were having to already get involved with the contact tracing case investigations, um, a lot of these pandemic response items, but also we can't have a waiting room full of individuals because then we could be propagating the spread of the virus. And so that had to be something that we really thought about early on is that, is that worth, you know, is someone being able to walk in, is that worth them than risking them risking getting COVID-19 in our waiting room, that's not going to be an acceptable thing either. And so we are still, we are doing appointment only. So at this time, part of that is the staffing, but a big part of that is because we want to make sure that we can have individuals have that six feet kind of viewing it like a bubble. Like we, we want to be sure that we're not bringing individuals who are trying to either get vaccines or family planning or sexually transmitted infection treatment or screenings. We want to make sure those individuals who are coming in for these preventive care um, issues that we're not then giving them an infection because we've got people packed together like they shouldn't be during right. the pandemic. Um, we Waiting are, rooms are just problematic. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly right. And so that's something that we continue to try to figure out what's the right balance here. These are really important services that the health department provides. Um, and so it's really, so, so um, it's trying to find that balance of how do we provide this as readily as possible without increasing someone's risk of getting this really serious illness. Um, yeah. yeah so and what about, it. what about some of the programs that I know that you've had in the past, things like tobacco cessation and, you know, trying to um, enforce the Tobacco 21 regulations? Are those things even possible now? It's so um, important because, you know, smoking is. is an independent risk factor for complications from COVID-19. Absolutely. And so I believe that I think the tobacco cessation program, it's 
changed recently just as funding for different programs changes. Sometimes the programs themselves have to change too. Um, so there's a lot of things that have to align with policy and <laughs> policies and the funding. And it's not, it, but you're right that tobacco cessation is a, a really important program um, and it's not been able. So a lot of our things haven't gotten the same amount of time. Um, our latent TB treatment, um, our, like you were mentioning earlier, um, HIV, there's still definitely um, we still have our HIV educators um, working very hard to reach individuals, but we're not doing those outreach programs. And similarly, for a couple of reasons, both the staff that usually are doing that are doing a million other things regarding the pandemic response. Mm -hmm. But also, we don't want to be hosting an event that then we bring a lot of individuals from different households and potentially different exposures to the same place. And so a lot of it's kind of trying to find this balance and hopefully we can find more of a balance as we have, as we have staff hired um, with the CARES Act funding to, um, to, to take on some of the, those responsibilities with the pandemic response that we can kind of get back to providing some of these um, services at the same time, though, it, we still can't look exactly the same as it did before because there is still a pandemic going on, if that makes sense, kind of twofold for each of these programs. It does. Well, Dr. Ashley Millam, uh, Medical Director of the Columbia Boone County Health Department, uh, thank you so much for spending time with us on Community Pulse. We sure do appreciate your voice, and I hope that you'll be able to come back and uh, talk to us again um, as time goes on and the situation changes because this update has been so helpful. And to our listeners, um, Wash your hands, wear your mask, take your vitamin D, and cultivate a cheerful confidence that you, your body can handle a viral infection. And uh, tomorrow we'll be uh, hosting Tori Kassebaum from City Garden. They're um, a private school that has just um, announced that they'll be doing a full-day outdoor program uh, starting in the fall. So um, many changes and exciting things are happening in Columbia. Thank you very much, Dr. Alleman, and thank you to our special guest, a very special thank you to our guest, Dr. Ashley Millam, the director of Columbia Boone County Hospital Services. That was a very informed and intriguing conversation. As Dr. Alleman mentioned, tomorrow, Tori Kassebaum, who runs City Garden, will uh, be her guest. Please do join us for that. We thank you, the listener. As always, we want to know what questions, comments, and insights you have related to coronavirus and programming on KOPN. Please leave us a message at 573-874-1139 or email us at gm at kopn.org. As a reminder, all backdated Community Pulse episodes are available on our website, kopn.org, also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And before we go, we have a special programming note for you as well. Uh, starting next week, Community Pulse will air twice a week. That will be on Mondays and Wednesdays from 9 a.m. to 9.30 p.m. And that will be followed by two new half-hour programs uh, from 9.30 to 10. Between the Lines will be airing on Monday and 51% will be airing on Wednesdays. As a result, Background Briefing will return to airing in its, in, uh, in its entirety on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. So the abridged versions of Background Briefing are soon to be something of the past. Thanks once again for joining us and please do join us tomorrow for an all-new episode of Community Pulse. Stay safe, stay informed, and don't forget that cheerful confidence that Dr. Alderman alluded to Columbia. Until tomorrow.